0: You are listening to the European Pavilion podcast.
1: make it experiential um, for people. I don't know how we would do that, but is it possible we could walk into a soundscape or some sort of virtual landscape of the Europe of 100 million years ago, and then 50 million, and then 25 million, and then 5 million, and then 100 years ago or 500 years ago, and then 200 years into the future? I think that that idea of the oak tree is nice for the last little bits because we could have an oak tree that was planted uh, 800 years ago, you know, during the medieval period and stand under its shade as it grows and and people dominate the landscape. And then if we take it into the future, it might be part of some great forest again with European rhinos back there and, and elephants or whatever you want. I mean, you know, don't you think it could be interesting to... The European
0: Pavilion Podcast.
1: Well, you know, I would give almost no space to nations, but I would give a lot of space to regions and to history and to nature. And I would, I would want to have a pavilion which prompted people to ask, what is Europe? What is it? Because people don't think about that. We use the word all the time, but no one really thinks about what makes Europe special or distinctive.
0: And for
1: you, what is Europe? Europe is the land of Dorga. It's it's the land of creative destruction, is what it is.
0: Welcome back to the European Pavilion podcast, a series produced as part of the European Pavilion program launched by the European Cultural Foundation in 2020. If you'd like to read more about this initiative, check out our website at culturalfoundation.eu. In this podcast, together with our guests we want to stimulate a critical and creative debate about the future of Europe. I am your host, Laure Gablier. Today, as we walk through the forest of Europe, we talk to Tim Flannery, an acclaimed scientist, explorer, conservationist, and one of Australia's leading writers on climate change. In his book, Europe, a Natural History, he tells a remarkable story of Europe which began as a tropical archipelago 100 million years ago and continued to evolve as a dynamic ever-changing continent at the crossroads of the world. For Tim Flannery, Europe is first and foremost a place of hybridization and metissage. Let us embark on this journey through deep time that may return us to a wide future for Europe. We might even see elephants roaming our landscapes once more.
1: A hybridization has been it's been occurring in Europe at a very rapid rate through Europe's history because Europe is a crossroads of the world where species from Asia meet species from Africa, in the past have even met species from North America and therefore can mix and if they're sufficiently closely related will hybridize and create often a stable new form of life, a new species. Hybridization is really, it has a negative connotation for some people but as farmers know, hybrids are very vigorous and very fit, and are often better in many ways at surviving than um, purebred species. So, one of the it is just a fact of life about Europe that hybridisation has been so important, and Europe has produced these species that evolve very quickly and are very capable at invading places like Australia. It's just what has happened through our history. So, I guess um, in terms of politics. Um, The lesson that I took away from that is that this political rhetoric in Europe about purity, racial purity or environmental purity is is really, um, it's unhelpful, it's dangerous, it's not the way Europe has been created. Europe has always been about change, hybridisation, adaptation. We see time and time again that Europe is destroyed and then remade. So the, the ancient Indian goddess, Dorga, the, the goddess of destruction and creation is really an essential European goddess to me. Europe is the land of bastardry. It, it's an hybridization and it's the land that is never still very long in the one place because of challenges from outside and challenges from inside. But, you know, there are some things in Europe that have persisted. So the midwife toad and the salamanders have persisted for 100 million years, you know, and they need to be celebrated as well.
0: From the perspective of natural history, Europe is all about movement and encounters. In other words, it is a place of migration, a continent always shaped and defined by the flow of organisms, including people.
1: Yeah, well, if you take a longer view of Europe it has been a place with enormous amounts of migration that have changed the land dramatically. So the very first migration events for the modern human species occurred about 38,000 years ago and they involved a hybridization event with the Neanderthals and which then colonized Europe. Since then, you know, there has been um, Waves of colonizers from the East, starting uh, 20,000 years ago, 14,000 years ago, 7,000, 5,000 years ago, and even more recently. And um, each wave has brought new genes in, has changed the land, has created uh, new vibrant cultures. Um, So it's it's just a continuous process in Europe. Um, There's always been people moving in and out, uh, settling areas uh, in this very, very rapidly changing landscape.
0: Countless waves of migration have given Europe the great richness and diversity of its population and landscapes. And yet, migration has become the source of division and polarization. The all-too-familiar phrase, fortress Europe, sums up the current trend towards isolation. In a sense, we seem to be betraying the ethos of Europe, or, as Tim Flannery puts it, moving away from the very roots of the continent.
1: It seems strange, but I would just go back to a question for Europe, of what is Europe? We hear a lot about what is France, or what is the Netherlands, or what is Hungary, but that they are irrelevant little dimples, populist dimples, on this great thing, this great evolving thing, which has been Europe. And Europe has been this land of creative destruction, of change of hybridisation, of genius arising from um, exposure to new ideas and new ways of thought. So I I think um, if we go back to the essence of what Europe is, we see that racism has no place in Europe. The idea of racial purity has no place in Europe. Um, The idea of just an unchanging forever is not European. (laughs) Europe is, 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 is a place of challenge. It's a place where uh, people thrive on challenge. So I, I would just ask people to go back to their European roots and to say, what is it that made this continent such a great power in the world, given it's a small place? What is it that can continue to make us leaders in the world? And all of those ideas, they come back down to the simple decisions. Do we let people, do we let refugees in? If you look at what Europe is, you would say, of course, because Europe will benefit from this. Europe will grow and, and become more diverse and more wonderful. And yes, it will be painful for a time. It always is. The process of creative destruction is always like that. But in the end, that's what makes Europe what it is.
0: As we speak, we hear a gentle high-pitched whistle, a sound somewhere between an electronic beep and a sonar pulse echoing around us. The singular call of the midwife toad can be heard across the forest of Europe, which it has inhabited since the beginning of time. The toad, a popular character in storytelling, evokes the process of transformation and metamorphosis that is at the core of life.
1: I was amazed when I discovered about the midwife toad. I knew it was an unusual animal, but I didn't realize it was a truly ancient animal far more ancient than any frogs we have in Australia. To me, when I looked at it then, I thought, wow, this is the European equivalent of the platypus, you know, some ancient, ancient animal that's been around for such a long time and yet really not appreciated as such. The Europeans should be really proud that they've got these very ancient amphibians. This is really fascinating. And it's such an unusual lifestyle as well that the midwife toad has adapted.
0: What is so special about this amphibian is that the male toad carries the fertilized eggs on his back until they hatch, a sharing of parenthood that should not be perceived as unusual.
1: You know, the Europeans, it seems to me, are always thinking a little bit ahead of the world. So, you know, the European Union is one example of that, you know, where you brought everyone together in a way that I think is the future for global politics. I think the rewilding movement, which really started in Europe, is again the future of our planet. We know we have to do that rewilding, because if we don't do that, we will face irreparable damage to the fabric of the living earth that supports us. Rewilding in the European context really means restoring the biodiversity that is necessary for Europe's ecosystems to function in an optimal way and not to keep on losing species. All ecosystems need large herbivores and large carnivores and some diversity to keep that going. In Europe, we see rewilding today focused on species like the wisent, the giant forest bison, um, of maybe recreating the aurochs, the ancient European horses. And it's a fascinating experiment, I think. But what it will mean in the long term is that Europe will be restored in a very meaningful way. The ecosystems of Europe that have been so devastated by people for thousands of years can actually be made to function properly again.
0: Europe's lands and forests were once populated by a broad variety of flora and fauna, which ensured the vitality of its ecosystems. As Tim Flannery explains, Europe is now at the forefront of a movement to restore biodiversity through a process of rewilding. This does not mean a nostalgic return to the past, but a forward-looking experiment, one that builds on the knowledge gained from thousands of years of interaction with the landscape.
1: How will the people of Europe in their cities live in a rewilded continent. Again, we don't know the answer, but we do know that Africans live in a wild continent, you know, and many people in Asia, in in India, for example, live with elephants and tigers and everything else. So, in my view, life is an adventure, and um, this is Europe's great adventure, just about to embark upon an extraordinary new phase, an extraordinary new and very exciting adventure. And look, as Europe rewilds, we'll see that wolves are already a bit of an issue, yeah? So, and and the wolves are doing that themselves, but Europeans will have to come to terms with a sort of a, a social architecture that allows wolves and nature to thrive alongside them. I live in Australia, we have crocodiles and sharks and poisonous snakes that we make accommodation with all of the time in our lives, and that's the way it is with nature.
0: Paradoxically, for a land to be rewilded, significant human intervention is necessary. Such paradox invite us to rethink our place in the ecosystems we are part of and our relation to public space and how it is managed.
1: When we talk about public space, what do we mean by public space? Do we mean everyone has exactly the same right to that space? Um, I think we need, I think as Europe starts to develop its rewilding process. We need to think a lot more about what is public and private. And I don't have the answers for that, but this is a question for a future Europe. This is a question for young people to think deeply about. And you know, Europe has had this tradition of the commons where they're not really public spaces in a sense, because everyone has ownership of something in the commons and can do something that other people can't do. But maybe that gives us some way into thinking at least a little bit about what this would be like.
0: How should we understand public space from the perspective of wilderness? How do we negotiate and foster a public space that is also a space of commons? For Tim Flannery, these are questions that must be framed with future generations in mind.
1: Well, I guess wild space doesn't have to be a commons, but I think increasingly it will become a commons simply because it needs to be managed in in the very long term in in a way that is almost beyond the capacity of, of an individual. So, and also land that is not directly so productive, land which is not going to be producing crops but will produce some resources perhaps is is just better managed in if you take the long view of european history as a commons it's it's diverse management for diverse resources and diverse environmental outcomes so i i don't know what the future holds really but i do think that um that 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 wild areas rewilded areas will increasingly become commons
0: these are exciting new territories look i think for
1: for companies and individuals It really, the system works best if you are optimising your economic return. That's what companies are set up to do. So to do that, you might plant a monoculture, a single crop, or you might have intensive dairy or whatever. But the commons were always places where everyone could have a little bit of something. You know, someone might have a right to collect acorns, someone else a right to collect mushrooms, someone else a right to put cattle on for a certain time. And I think rewilded areas are going to be extremely environmentally diverse. And if you take that general model, then they fit much more comfortably into the, the, the commons concept rather than into the concept of private ownership.
0: Our ties to the land and natural resources have been disrupted by monoculture and intensive farming. Something got lost along the way. The cow and its mythical connection to the origins of Europe reminds us of the symbiotic relationship we have with the animals that we have been closely bound together with for millennia. As Tim Flannery champions, the cow has rights in Europe.
1: Look at the cow and think about its relationship with people, not as it is today in the dairy cow in a factory, you know, but as it was for thousands of years, where the cow was a member of the family almost. The most valued asset, and um, was treated like an individual. And you, you know, I've done had a little bit of, uh, had dairying people in my family. And you know, you know, you if the cow isn't ready to give you the milk from the calf, it won't give it to you unless it's in a factory. You know, you have to actually broker a deal with the cow. It knows it has rights in the family. You know, and and the cow has rights in Europe. Um, and I think as we rewild Europe, this idea of creating the ancestral cattle of Europe again, the aurochs, is a fascinating challenge. It's been polluted in the past by Nazi ideology and all sorts of problems. But I can't think of a better way of honouring Europe than trying to use those cattle as the large herbivores.
0: The elephant in the room is an expression used to refer to an obvious and burning issue that nobody dares to address. I asked Tim Flannery what would be the elephant in the room when it comes to discussing the future of Europe. What is there that we don't want to see?
1: Look, the elephant in the room is the um, the unconsidered attachment to earlier versions of Europe, uh, like Beatrix Potter, you know, the, all of the children's stories that relate to a a very diminished Europe, almost a child-level view of Europe, the Heathrow, where you can see the little mouse and the little birds, which is adorable and lovely. But in a way, we can also say is, Europe was reduced to that from this grand landscape. So maybe that's the, or the, the elephant in the room, is what is haunting our imagination about what we think European nature is, the childhood images. People think they know Europe, but they don't. They don't know that European elephants still survive in Africa.
0: Tim Flannery is known for his extravagant idea of bringing back elephants to Europe, something that most of us cannot imagine, and yet he insists that Europe has room for them and that they are part of the future of the continent.
1: To me, the elephant is the most magical survivor, you know, because We have the fossils of of elephants in Europe, and um, I could never imagine in a million years that we would find the genes of those ancient European elephants still surviving in West Africa. To me, it was like this magical moment when the curtains were pulled away to reveal this truth, this fundamental truth that... Europe survives outside Europe. It's like, you know, the the ancient elves and gnomes and goblins of Europe. They retreated back into the forest as rationality grew, you know, and into the most remote areas and into the... And in a way, that's what Europe's megafauna has done. You know, they're still there in West Africa. You know, they've retreated to the margins. But we can invite them back in. We can bring them back in and reconstitute a much more wonderful Europe. I see the future of Europe as being this wild place. You are going to have most of the forests and probably the elephants and the lions and everything else long after they've gone out of Africa. Because Africa will have a population of 4 billion people, whereas Europe will be a population of way less than a billion and you'll have all the forested lands. I can imagine Europe in the future being an archipelago again, an island archipelago of cities. So separated by these great tracts of wild forest, and the young Europeans going out into the forest to learn and to have adventures and um, and take tourists to see the wildlife in those places.
0: The Europe of hundred million years ago, this archipelago at the crossroads of the world, is perhaps what best paved the way for the continent's future. The possibility of a world beyond connection and flux, disinterred and in which a rich diversity of beings can thrive. In our next episode, Polish artist Joanna Heyskowska, who is known for her public interventions, will talk about her idea of public space as habitat. You listened to the European Pavilion podcast.